0: As we get set to study the scriptures and search the scriptures together, let's pray once more. Father, it is true because you have decreed it from ages past that the old age with its death and destruction and sin, wickedness is passing away. And that the new age, the new heavens, the new earth are going to dominate and utterly overtake. And that right now we live in the overlap of the ages. Father, through it all, your word endures forever. Flesh and blood may fail, but your word endures forever. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the potency of your word. We thank you that in 2022 it yet speaks powerfully because your spirit continues to work with it. We thank you for your word. And now, Lord, as we open this magnificent little book of Jonah for the very last time, the final verses of this book, we ask your attendance, we ask that you would come sweetly, powerfully, gently, not so gently, however it is that you would like to work, Lord. May it be your pleasure and Father, Uh, May we be transformed further into the image of your Son because we are exposed to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, friends, we come to the final six verses of the book of Jonah. Our trek is winding up here. I want us right off the top to notice something peculiar that happens in these last verses of Jonah. Now, first of all, just to point out, these final verses of the book of Jonah describe the Lord's direct dealing with an angry Jonah. These final verses describe a a very profound lesson that the Lord teaches an angry Jonah. But what we notice here in these verses that describe the Lord's dealings with Jonah. What we notice here is that the word God gets used four times in verses six through nine. In Hebrew, it's the word Elohim. That word appears four times here, while the word Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, Yahweh in Hebrew, gets used only once in these four verses. Why is this significant? This is significant because up until this moment in the story, the person of Jonah has been closely associated with Yahweh, or the Lord. Yahweh is the covenant name of Israel's God, and Jonah is an Israelite, and so the name Yahweh has been used all over the place in this book in connection with Jonah, For example, when Jonah receives divine communication, like in verse one of chapter one, and in verse one of chapter three, it's the word Yahweh that gets used there. Or in those places where Jonah's rocky relationship with the Lord is described, like in 1.3 and in 1.10, it's the word Yahweh that gets used there. Or when the Lord hurls the wind on the sea because of Jonah in 1.4, it's the word Yahweh. Or when Jonah prays throughout chapter two of Jonah, it's Yahweh and so on and so forth. The overwhelming majority of the time When Jonah's relationship with the divine is being described in this book, we find the word LORD, all caps, or Yahweh. Until now. In these final few verses of the book, there is this sudden switch now to four back-to-back uses of Elohim, God. So four, six. Yahweh Elohim appointed a plant. Four seven, Elohim appointed a worm. Four eight, Elohim appointed a scorching east wind. Four nine, Elohim said to Jonah. This is a switch of terms here that should not be ignored. This is a purposeful switch from Yahweh to Elohim on the part of the writer Of Jonah as he's describing this lesson that God is implementing on Jonah. But why does the writer do this? Why? Well, what we find in the book of Jonah also is that the word Elohim, God, is almost always used in connection with Gentiles. When Gentiles speak, or when gentiles are described the word elohim gets used the single exception is when the gentile sailors cry out to yahweh having had an awakening to yahweh they cry out to yahweh and they make sacrifices to yahweh in 114 and in 116 but the word elohim god is used the majority of the time where gentiles are speaking and acting. Examples, Jonah 1.5, each of the Gentile mariners cries out to his Elohim, to his God. In 1.6, the Gentile captain says to Jonah, we remember, cry out to your Elohim. And the Gentile captain then says, perhaps the Elohim will give a thought to us. Chapter three, verse five, the Gentile people of Nineveh believe Elohim, And in 3.8, the king of Nineveh recommends that the people call out to Elohim. 3.9, he says, who knows? Elohim may turn and relent. 3.10, Elohim sees what the Gentile Ninevites did. Elohim relents. Again, that word Elohim, God, is used in the vast majority of cases in the book of Jonah to describe the Lord's association with Gentiles. So when we have this sudden switch now, in chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, to Elohim, to God, as divine dealings with Jonah are being described, it signals to us, listen, that the person of Jonah is being brought alongside the Gentiles, alongside the Ninevites. Or in the words of John Walton, he says this sudden prevalence now of the word Elohim in these verses suggests that Jonah has been, in Walton's words, relocated among the non-Israelites relocated among the non-Israelites in the object lesson that God is administering here. Jonah, friends, is brought into parallel now with the Gentile Ninevites. Jonah is now lumped in with the Gentile Ninevites. This is very important for us to reckon with and to understand if we would fully appreciate what's going on in this final section of the book. So let's go to our text now, keeping in view what we have just tried to argue, that Jonah is now sided up with the Gentile Ninevites. Jonah is paralleling the Gentile Ninevites. Verse 6, Yahweh Elohim appointed a plant. (laughs) The word appointed here, this word has already been used in the book of Jonah when, We remember in 117, God appointed what? A great fish to swallow Jonah. Now God does it again. He shows his sovereign lordship in the realm of nature again. He appoints a plant and he makes it come up over Jonah. Isn't this nice? He appoints a plant so that it would come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head, get the picture, to save him from his discomfort. This plant that God appoints has big oversized leaves that serve to shade Jonah from the uncomfortable heat as Jonah sits and waits there hoping for the discomfort and destruction of the Ninevites. Now, in what way does Jonah look like the Ninevites here? What's the parallel? Well, the clue in the specific language that gets used here in verse six is this. The issue for Jonah is what the text calls his, notice, discomfort. What's the potential discomfort for Jonah? The heat, the heat is Jonah's discomfort. Jonah had first attempted himself to remedy his discomfort by doing what? By going ahead and building that makeshift hut, remember? In verse five, Jonah was faced with this discomfort, so he went and tried to remedy it by building the hut. Well, the Hebrew word in the original text here that is translated as discomfort is the exact same word that we had in 3.10, when God relented of the disaster, when God relented of the discomfort that had been threatened on Nineveh. Do you see the parallel? Nineveh had been faced with a discomfort with a disaster, namely, the threatened judgment of God upon them. Jonah is faced now with a discomfort, the heat of the sun. And where Jonah had made an effort to spare himself of his discomfort by building that hut, guess what? The Ninevites also had made an effort to spare themselves of their discomfort by repenting. Jonah parallels Gentile Nineveh here. And in both cases, in Jonah's case and in Nineveh's case, God came along, didn't he? God came along in his mercy and gave grace. In Jonah's case, Jonah builds the hut to try to escape his discomfort, and God comes along and does what? Grows the plant to shade Jonah, mercy and grace. In Nineveh's case, they repent in an effort to escape the threatened discomfort, and God comes along in his mercy and his grace, and he relents. He relents from implementing the discomfort that was threatened upon them. In both cases, God delivers from discomfort, amen? He delivers from discomfort. He saves Jonah from his discomfort and he saves Nineveh from their discomfort. Jonah parallels Nineveh and this is purposeful, this is genius. I always say from the pulpit that the writers of scripture were geniuses. And this is genius here in the text. Well, let's go to the last sentence of verse six now. We'll come back to this little chart a little later. So the plant springs up, the leaves are beautifully shading Jonah's head. So Jonah was, get the picture, exceedingly, exceedingly glad. Exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah is thrilled. Jonah is ecstatic here. Now, friends, I'm heading to my hometown of Edmonton tomorrow, and in Edmonton uh, there is the Mindbender roller coaster that is located in West Edmonton Mall. Up and down and around you go on a mind bending Ride. Well, Jonah is a roller coaster, a true roller coaster in his emotional life. Remember that just five verses ago, just five verses ago, Jonah had been exceedingly what? Displeased and angry. At what? Angry that the mercy of God was going to Nineveh. Now in 4.6, Jonah is jumping for joy over the mercy that has come into his life, suddenly and fortuitously in this plant that is shading him. Now he can enjoy shade as he waits for the annihilation of Nineveh. Here, Well, (laughs) with this blessing of the plant, maybe it's a sign that God approves of what I'm doing here. As I wait for Nineveh's destruction. Maybe God has come around to my way of thinking at last. Notice here, Jonah is happier at this point than we've seen him in the entire book. Happy over some leaves. But then we get verse seven. Hang on to your hats. Whoops, I'm getting too excited. But when dawn came up the next day, what happened? God appointed a worm. God is in charge of the microbial universe. God appointed a worm that did what? Attacked the plant so that it withered. Again, God had appointed the great fish to swallow Jonah. God had appointed the plant to shade Jonah. Now God comes along and he appoints a worm to attack that same plant, and that word translated into English as attack has to do with striking, smiting, God directs a lowly worm here to go and smite this plant, which is going to mean what? It's going to mean that Jonah's discomfort is now going to be in play again. Verse eight, it only gets worse for Jonah. When the sun rose, God did more appointing. Now God appointed what? A scorching. East wind. Now in scripture, an east wind is connected with judgment. For example, during the time of the Exodus, the Lord had brought an east wind that had carried locusts upon Egypt, the eighth plague. And in Ezekiel 19, verse 12, as God's judgment on Israel is being described there, an east wind figures into the judgment. Here in Jonah 4.8, God appoints a scorching east wind, a symbol of judgment, and the verse says that the sun beat down. I hope we can get the picture as we read the text. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Now, remember how we said last Sunday that the word anger that is used in this chapter to describe the attitude of Jonah. That word has to do with heat, remember? With burning. Now Jonah is literally scorched in the head with heat as he is still hot with his anger over what has happened here. So Jonah is internally hot with anger, and now he's externally hot with sunstroke. Now we pause here again to reflect on the parallel relationship between Jonah and Nineveh. We've pointed out already just to review that both Jonah and Nineveh had been faced with a discomfort, right? Heat in the case of Jonah and threatened judgment. In the case of Nineveh, we've also pointed out that both Jonah and Nineveh had acted to alleviate their discomfort, Jonah with his hut the Ninevites with their repentance. And we've pointed out also that God came in grace in both instances, giving Jonah the plant and giving the repentant Ninevites his relenting, his mercy and grace. But now there comes a change in our parallel structure. This is where the change happens. In Nineveh's case, after they repented and God relented, The disaster that had threatened them comes off the table for the remainder of the book. God's grace continues on for the Ninevites. After chapter 3, verse 10, it continues on. When God relents, Nineveh then lives in peace. But for Jonah, things are different. After God's giving Jonah the plant in his grace. Then the worm comes, kills the plant, the the wind and the sun are allowed to scorch Jonah. What's happening? Jonah is brought into the discomfort, right? That he had been trying to avoid. What's happening? Well, in a greatly reduced, miniature sort of way when when compared with what had been threatened on nineveh in a reduced and mid- this wind and i still because of this little discomfort jonah just he can't figure out what's happening to him here the whole situation is utterly absurd A plant grows quickly and miraculously, he thinks, bringing me such relief and happiness and comfort only to then wither up and die overnight so that now I'm suffering in this heat and this wind and I still see no suffering down there in Nineveh. This is absurd. I want off this planet. I want to die, he says. Friends, Jonah hates his suffering, he hates his suffering, but he salivates still at the prospect of the Ninevites' suffering. Jonah can't handle some leaves dying and a parched scalp, but he still hopes for God's full wrath on Nineveh, which if it came would be a million times worse for Nineveh than a dry scalp is for Jonah. You know, the worm may have shriveled the plant, but the real thing that shriveled very conspicuously here is Jonah's heart. There's a worm eating up Jonah's heart here. And meanwhile, God has done nothing wrong here. I hope we see that. God has done nothing wrong. He's done nothing cruel to Jonah. God, in this object lesson of growing the plant and then shriveling the plant, is after Jonah. God is teaching Jonah a beautiful, redemptive lesson. God is trying to bring Jonah from a state of spiritual patheticness to a state of spiritual health. He's after Jonah's good. In all of this, just as God is after us, listen, when God appoints the worm in our lives, when God causes the scorching wind and the burning sun of affliction that causes so much discomfort for us, God is after us. What's he trying to do? He's trying to change us into the image of his son. He wants our hearts. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to mature. He wants to bring our heart in alignment with his heart. And so, friends, this text is posing the question to us. It's posing the question to us what is our response when God brings the worm and the wind? into our lives. What's our response? Well, for his part, Jonah wants to die. And God responds to Jonah's ongoing moroseness in verse nine. God responds to Jonah with the same basic question that he'd asked Jonah in verse four. God asks Jonah, and you gotta, gotta, as you read the text, God is just cool he really is. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? (laughs) Can we see how narrow and how shriveled Jonah's world has become here? Do you do well to be angry for The plant, Jonah's whole emotional life has been captured and controlled by the leaves of this plant. The plant had been healthy. Jonah had been shaded, comforted, but now the leaves had shriveled and they had died. And now Jonah is uncomfortable and he's hot. He's hot both in temperature and hot in emotion. His whole world is focused on this plant. The plant must survive for my comfort, he says, but the people of Nineveh, well, they can die, but this plant. Jonah is definitely more withered spiritually than the plant is physically. Jonah is obsessed here, friends, with the wrong thing. He's obsessed with the wrong thing. Just as we can get obsessed and off track over petty things in the church, losing sight of the gospel and the spread of the gospel. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah answers God in more petulance and more anger. Yes, he says. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now we pause here and we ask, isn't it, it, it's astonishing to me that God chose this guy to be a prophet? Isn't that astonishing? And isn't it equally astonishing that God chooses rascals like us to serve in his kingdom? And yet he does. Well, at last, we come to the final two verses of Jonah. God has just subjected Jonah to this object lesson with the plant, and now God's going to drive home the lesson to Jonah, to us. And what we notice in verse 10 is that after those four back-to-back uses of Elohim, God, now the writer switches back suddenly to Yahweh, the Lord. Now it's the covenant Lord of Israel speaking to his Israelite child, Jonah, and Yahweh says to Jonah, you pity the plant, or you have been so concerned about this plant. You have been obsessed and you have been troubled over this plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Yes, Jonah, this was your trivial, petty little focus, the leafy plant and all the benefits, the little benefits that it gave to you. This is how narrow your world and your emotional life had become, Jonah. And yet within your sight, Jonah, within your sight right now is Nineveh, a city teeming with image bearers a city teeming with human beings who are under the threat of destruction. You preferred that all of them would die, but but not the plant. Spare the plant. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And then we get the last verse of the book, verse 11, and Yahweh says, should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, image bearers, who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Of all the characters in the book of Jonah, Jonah himself, the Lord, the sailors, the Ninevites, Who was it who spoke first in the book? The Lord did. He had first say in the book and now he gets last say in the book of Jonah, very important, after all of Jonah's drama. God closes the book of Jonah by pointing out to Jonah that within Nineveh there are 120,000 spiritually blind image bearers. When God says here that these 120,000 people do not know their right hand from their left, he's using a figure of speech, which means morally ignorant, or unable to discern clearly between good and evil. These people, to use Tim Keller's phrase, these people are in a spiritual fog, in a spiritual fog. They are morally confused. And of course, this doesn't mean that they're innocent. This doesn't absolve them of all responsibility, but friends, what their moral confusion does do, listen, is it brings God's compassion on them. God looks at Nineveh here like Jesus looked at the crowds in Matthew nine thirty six. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. God voices the compassion of his heart here for all of these lost, morally confused people. Meanwhile, Jonah is obsessed with his leaves. Why have these leaves withered, right? My friends, how obsessed we can be with the wrong things. Jonah's obsession with his petty, selfish concerns has taken him far afield from God's program, far afield from God's program. Jonah's obsession with the plant and the comfort that he gets from it has taken him far afield from the compassionate heart that God has toward lost people, not wishing that any should perish. Jonah isn't about God's mission. Jonah is about Jonah. Where are we at today? That's the question that this passage is asking us, where are we at today? Don't you love the way the book ends? This is great, God throws in that final phrase there. And also much cattle. God says to Jonah, Jonah there's this host of 120,000 lost image bearers in Nineveh that I'm exercising my compassion on, and also much cattle. I think this is a little redemptive dig at Jonah here. God is after Jonah. God wants to move Jonah's withered heart to something better. God is saying to Jonah here Jonah, you're obsessed with this plant, with this leafy growth in nature, the natural world. Well, if you're not going to care, care about the image bearer, at least care about the cows and the oxen. The cattle, because they're part of nature, just like your plant is. Maybe you'll have compassion on at least the cattle. (laughs) My friends, what's our obsession as we wind this up? What are the ways that you and I become obsessed with our little leaves? Withered, narrowed down, oblivious, to God's urgent, compassionate mission to a world of lost people. Well, in these days, we seem to be spending a lot of time distancing ourselves from other image bearers in a number of ways. Those foolish, unvaccinated people. They can have what they deserve. Those foolish vaccinated people, they're all sheep. Those Trudeau supporters, those Polyev supporters, those Singh supporters, those Trump supporters, those Biden supporters. We distance and we detach ourselves from each other and the list goes on and on. What is the focus of our hearts? On plants and leaves, little, petty obsessions? Or on God and his urgent mission to his world? We get on social media, not with the aim of promoting God's compassionate heart for the lost, nine times out of 10, not not with a heartfelt, genuine Christ-imitating empathy for those who disagree with us, but rather we get on social media to trumpet our positions and to declare our arguments. Did you notice, friends, how many people on social media were epidemiological experts a few months ago? Now we have hosts of people on social media who are suddenly geopolitical experts. We argue and we disparage and we detach ourselves, we separate ourselves from other image bearers by our obsession to be right. I dare say we're fixated on leaves when we do that, obsessed with the wrong things. Church, may it not be more light is expected of us, amen? Well, friends, in the end, the book of Jonah becomes like a showcase of God's merciful and gracious dealings, does it not? God's works, God's words, his actions throughout the entire book show solid alignment, solid alignment with the description of him that is given to us in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses three and four, where Paul writes, That God our Savior, listen, God our Savior desires all people to be saved. All people to be saved. Think of any person you want to. All people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The book of Jonah is a showcase of that compassionate heart of God. There was Jonah sitting outside the city of Nineveh, cheerleading the destruction of Nineveh hoping that Nineveh would perish while griping about his perishing plant. There is the Son of God, suffering and dying outside the city gate. Hebrews 13, 12, in boundless compassion shedding his blood on the cross, that whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is so utterly superior to Jonah in every way. And I trust that God has shown us in our study of Jonah the wideness of his mercy, compared to ours, and that he's been pleased to work further in us and upon us to make us look more like him. Richard Phillips has this great paragraph in his commentary on Jonah on the greatness and wideness of God's mercy. Listen to this, Phillips writes this. How wide is God's mercy? Its true measure is in the length of the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ. God's only son on the cross of Calvary to die for our sins. If anyone will come to the Savior at the cross pleading the mercy of God, that sinner will find God's mercy wide enough to enter into eternal life. At the same cross, says Phillips, God calls us to lift up our eyes above our petty little selves and see the glory of his grace as he looks in pity on the world. Looking at the eyes of God's son, gazing from the cross, how can we not look on the lost with a similar pity? Let us, for pity's sake, love the world in his name, offering to any and all sinners the mercy and grace that God has shown to us, close quote. Indeed, friends, and what we notice as the last verse of Jonah sounds is that it's a question from God. Notice, it's a question from God. A question from God is the last thing in the book, and we don't get Jonah's reply to the question. There's no verse 12 of Jonah chapter four. We don't know how Jonah responded. Did Jonah learn anything That's a question we could legitimately ask. Did Jonah learn anything in the book? We don't know. Did Jonah finally humble down before the Lord? We don't know, but then the message of the book doesn't depend on Jonah's response, does it? Our concern must be with our own response before the the Lord, our own doing of the word. See, preaching is not a passive thing. Right, It's not like you just sit, listen, and then go for lunch. It's not a passive thing. We are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. What will you do with the book of Jonah? That's the question. What will I do with the book of Jonah? How will we put feet on this magnificent little book? Perhaps we will start by falling on our knees and asking God's forgiveness for our leaf obsession pleading with him to change our hearts. Perhaps we will confess before God how cold we feel toward our lost neighbor, repenting before him, asking that he fill us again with his love and his compassion for the lost that would then issue forth in real works of love and care and self-sacrifice. The question is, and then I'm done, friends, how will you, how will I write verse 12 of Jonah 4. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for meddling in our lives with your word. Showing us that as much as we read and interpret your word, you interpret us by it and you don't want us to stay the same. You want us to change from glory to glory, and sometimes that's not comfortable. But we thank you, Lord, for the uncomfortable, discomforting work that you do in us, disturbing the comfortable, comforting the disturbed as you do. Lord, thank you for not leaving us alone, for uh, your desire to change us, to bring us from fleshly, wicked desires and attitudes to look like Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your work in us. And I pray that this book of Jonah would continue to work on us for your glory, for our benefit, and for your world. In Jesus' name, amen.